From the PA Foundation, I'm James Millward, and this is Vital Minds, a podcast connecting the most vital issues in clinical care with the top minds facing them every day. Here on Vital Minds, we have had a number of guests with expertise in treating opioid use disorders and preventing opioid misuse. Today, we're going to be talking about the convergence of telemedicine and prevention of opioid misuse. It's a topic that's especially relevant today as telemedicine has become mainstream when COVID-19 emerged as a national public health crisis. Out of an abundance of caution for patients and healthcare providers alike, telemedicine has become a solution for limiting the spread of the virus while still providing essential patient care. Key to this was the Center of Medicare and Medicaid Services lifting practice restrictions and providing other regulatory flexibility to increase access to telemedicine services. As a result, patients and healthcare providers have adapted very quickly. According to a May 2020 McKinsey & Co. report, 64% of providers say they are now comfortable using telehealth platforms. In the same report, patients gave telemedicine very high marks, with 74% saying they are highly satisfied with telehealth services. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention also reported in December 2020 that overdose deaths in the U.S. have increased by 81,000 in the May 2019 to May 2020 reporting period, and most recent numbers indicate an acceleration of the trend during the pandemic. Here to help us dive deeper into the intersection of telemedicine, opioid prescribing, and prevention of misuse is Dr. Jeremy Adler, DMSC and PAC, practicing in pain management in the San Diego area. Jeremy is also a member of the AAPA's Board of Directors. Thank you for joining me today, Jeremy. Thank you, James, for having me. This is a very important and timely topic, uh, certainly uh, in our nation. And uh, I'm thrilled to uh, to share some of the insights that we have gathered here uh, locally in my practice, as well as what I've heard from around the country. I do want to mention, although I do sit on the AAPA Board of Directors, I am speaking today uh, on my own behalf and not as a representative of that board. But again, thank you for having me join you uh, this morning. Thank you. Now, Jeremy, let's start with your PA practice. How did you come to specialize in pain management? Well, when I began practice a little over 20 years ago, I had not heard of the specialty of pain, and I had not gone through my PA medical education with the idea that I would be practicing pain, and certainly not for this long. But that being said, I went to a PA program in New York, and upon graduation, returned to California, where I grew up and found that the PA marketplace was not as developed as one would like. And after a number of months and a number of lost leads, I was fortunate enough to be connected with an anesthesiologist who had a pain practice who was looking to expand. And in doing so, I recall, he said, join my pain practice and you will certainly learn to enjoy the specialty. And I had a lot of skepticism. In fact, my dad, a physician, I had called up and said, I'm going to be interviewing for a pain management position. And his response was, why did you go to PA school to practice pain management? Really, the amount of education or really the lack of the specialty is uh, widespread. But anyway, I ended up shadowing this physician, joined him, and have not looked back. I think it's really a fascinating uh, area of medicine. It intersects medicine, psychiatry, addiction medicine, surgical procedures. It really is a, a unique area within the medical specialties. In terms of my own practice now, I currently co-own a practice with a number of physicians and PAs. I practice in San Diego or just north of 
the city of San Diego. And we do comprehensive pain management. So we work with interventions, medications. We have contacts and relationships with psychologists, psychiatrists, physical therapists, and really try to provide a comprehensive approach for our patients. That's great. It sounds like you've really kind of taken hold of the this aspect of medicine. And as you mentioned, it is so prevalent. I, I see it all the time in surgery because of post-op pain management and patients that come to us with prior opioid tolerance or addictions. And the overwhelming feeling you get is there's not enough care, there's not enough support for these patients. Uh, so I think it's great what you guys are doing out there. Now, when you look back on your practice journey through the years, did you ever anticipate how much we would come to rely on telemedicine? I, I could not have foreseen a future in which I would be practicing telemedicine, particularly in the special of pain management. But Necessity breeds innovation, and, and here we are. Telemedicine has been a wonderful addition to our practice, and although we are here because of the COVID crisis, this will certainly be an enduring part of our practice. Uh, we have found that we can reach patients in ways and learn things about our patients in a manner that was really never available to us before. So it's opened up a whole real new world of opportunity for us and for our patients. So it's really an exciting part of our practice now that I look forward to continuing. Now, of course, I look forward to continuing telemedicine on a, a voluntary basis, not a necessity basis. But nonetheless, it's still really an exciting part of what's happening within our field. I agree. I think it has provided a great open door for access to, to care for so many patients that you know, may not have the ability to come in or, or the concerns you know, regarding the pandemic but it has been very helpful. Now, relating to opioid use, the CDC did mention that more than 40 states have reported increases in opioid-related mortality, as well as ongoing concerns for those with mental illness and substance use disorders during this last year. Does that trend tend to surprise you at all? Sadly, I, I would not say that it does. Deep within this data, though, what is important is to really understand that the data is often a compilation of a number of things. Some of these people are patients, but the lion's share are not presently patients. In fact, the use of illicit opioids in the United States is ever increasing and creating a real threat to the health and safety of our, our country. I think that the mortality data is something that we need to recognize as a consequence of some of the access issues. We had already talked about telemedicine today about increasing access. When people don't have access, they may rely on either self-management. So some of these individuals who are suffering the, the greatest harm of an opioid are trying to self-treat with illicitly obtained opioid. Or there's certainly an increase in mental health conditions, depression, anxiety, and access to illicit substances for chemical coping is on the rise as well. So sadly, I'm not surprised that it's increasing, and certainly we need to, to change this path and try to engage these people into the healthcare system when possible to try and help and reduce the harms that we're seeing. I think those harms we're, we're, are, are seen across the board right now. I know in our practice in cardiac surgery, anecdotally, we have seen a big uptick in the number of admissions we're seeing for endocarditis and a large rise in the patient population struggling with IV drug abuse. And I think the combination of things that have gone on this year have definitely added to this problem nationwide. Now we know that the opioid crisis represents both a combination of prescription and illicit drugs. And as PAs, we are very sensitive to the influence that we have on preventing this prescription opioid misuse. In your opinion, how does the adoption of telemedicine intersect with this opioid crisis? 
And are there new precautions or protocols we should be adhering to when treating patients by telemedicine, especially those we see for chronic pain? There are pros and cons. There's certainly a lot of value in sitting across from a patient and talking to them, hands-on examining them, and practicing medicine in the traditional way that we have. When it comes to opioids, prescription opioids, for legitimate medical purpose, I mean, treating a pain condition with an opioid, I think that telemedicine does offer some unique opportunity. One of those areas has to do with one of our primary objectives with opioid therapy, and that is to enhance functionality. One of the things we look at is to see if we introduce an opioid medication for severe pain, we expect improvement in that patient's functionality because we believe that improved functionality is closely linked to an improved quality of life, which is really a foundation of why we might use an opioid. With telemedicine, I've had the opportunity now to peer into patients' lives in a way that's very different than the exam room. Patients will come in the past and tell me about different projects they've completed, different things they could do, different family members that they've interacted with. Well, now I'm often invited into their home and they show me some of these things that they've accomplished. They introduce me to some of their family members and I hear stories and I receive information in ways that just really was never a part of the care before. And it really has helped me better understand the individual that I'm treating. And in many ways, I think that enhances the relationship. Now, that doesn't mean it's perfect. One of the areas that we've struggled with is some of our monitoring tools, for example, urine drug monitoring. That has not been the easiest to implement working with the laboratories or having them provide us samples and do it in a way that we feel is confidently assessing for illicit or other types of substance use disorders. But nonetheless, there are definitely some real benefits for those patients that we are treating through telemedicine that we hadn't really considered in the past. I like that point you made about how the telemedicine does give us that opportunity to peer into the patient's life in a very different setting. And oftentimes patients are more comfortable even in those settings because they are in their own home. Now, in what ways have you found virtual care to be beneficial to your patients? Well, certainly access has been a huge factor. We have been able to, to reach patients. We know that we've kept them safe in terms of not exposing them within the medical or health centers that we practice in. It really has been a way to provide them ongoing care. Some of our patients have, over the last year, moved. Uh, some have moved out of state. They moved to different areas. And access for patients in chronic pain, especially if an opioid is involved, is very challenging. And they've had difficulty in transitioning care. Well, telemedicine has been a great way for us to be able to bridge that gap. We've been able to continue to follow them, monitor them, and help them ease into another practice when they're no longer in our area. Locally, if a patient's having issues or concerns, in the past, we may have to talk to them on the telephone. Now we can actually see them through two-way visual communication, which greatly enriches that conversation and, and exchange. So in many ways, this has been a real benefit to our patients. They, I believe, are receiving care that's certainly at or better than what it was before in many ways. And we plan on continuing this in, in some form, that this is certainly an important piece of, of the practice of medicine, as I think others around the country are finding as well. I agree. I think telemedicine has made its stamp in, in healthcare and is not going to diminish too much after things settle down with this pandemic. While many of the benefits of telemedicine have really manifested themselves over the past year, as you mentioned, there are some limits to this model. What other challenges have you encountered when it comes to telemedicine that providers should be aware of? Well, certainly it's not the end-all be-all for every condition. The patients that we know well 
who we've transitioned to telemedicine have been an easy transition. It has been more difficult with patients who are new to us where we're working them up, trying to diagnose their underlying pain generator conditions, and that can be a challenge. For those we've still used telemedicine, we'll often use telemedicine to gather our history. We can certainly, through telemedicine, obtain some exam findings, but then we may have them present to our office with a focused exam. We limit the time they're with us, but then we can be much more strategic in trying to diagnose them. Telemedicine is a challenging format, for example, teasing out a sacroiliac joint dysfunction versus a facet joint dysfunction or some of the other things that we need to determine when people complain of pain. There are also a lot of procedures that we do. Much of uh, pain management is not just revolving around opioids. In addition to other pharmacologic options, there are a lot of interventional options. And those patients certainly need to come in, particularly some of our more advanced pain therapies, such as intrathecal therapies. We have many patients with implantable pumps. They have to be serviced. They have to be refilled. They have to be monitored. We still use telemedicine, though, where we'll evaluate them, make a plan, and when they present to us for the, for example, refill of a pump, it's very strategic. They come in, we fill the pump, they go, but we don't do our decision-making sitting with them in the exam room. We still use telemedicine for that engagement. So there's a pure telemedicine model, and then there's a hybrid. And I think for many of our patients, that hybrid has actually been working even better. Well, I think that hybrid model is a great solution to this. I always think about telemedicine. You, you don't get to put your stethoscope against the patient. We don't listen to the heart, the lungs. But that hybrid model would clearly give you that opportunity. Now, as telemedicine becomes the new normal for healthcare professionals, we have seen some challenges. And there are challenges when it comes to treating pain and prescribing pain medicines, including opioids. Many of these are due to regulations, which have changed and some have been loosened, if you will, to provide access to patients during this time. How have the regulations changed for the patients you work with regarding their pain management? And is this a change you'd like to see carried forward? The prescribing of opioids has a number of points of regulation. You have state regulation over the practice of medicine, but of course there's federal regulation over the issuance of a controlled substance uh, through the DEA. And the DEA has relaxed some of the requirements, uh, specifically a requirement for an in-person exam to be considered a legitimate prescription. As such, they've really said from the national level that there's a need to prescribe that's legitimate your engagement with that patient can occur now in a number of ways. If it's treating a opiate use disorder, it can occur just over the telephone with the buprenorphine. So they definitely have made it clear from the DEA they are not going to, to stand in the way of, of good medical practice just because of the rules during this time of the health emergency. Now, of course, once the health emergency ends, we expect to see those changed. But for now, that's really the, the voice of the DEA. At the state level, where the practice of medicine is regulated, I would say it's not quite as clear. One of the challenges in pain management, specifically around opioids, is that the evidence that really establishes what should be evidence-based best practice is fairly thin. And as a result, there are numerous guidelines and publications. Uh, some are from governmental agencies like the uh, interagency task force at HHS or the CDC. Some are from professional societies. Some are from state regulatory boards. Trying to adhere to guidelines is a challenge when you have a magnitude of guidelines to try to adhere to. So one of the things I think that is a challenge right now is trying to anticipate in the future that should a problem arise or a complaint be generated, what will the standards 
essentially be established for a particular case? How will one as a professional basically be judged with what they are doing when the rules are not totally crystal clear right now? So I think that there's still going to be a, a lot to learn about how opioid management, telemedicine, and pain management at large are going to be viewed through future complaints, essentially, and regulatory oversight. But hopefully, professional reviewers who look at these cases will understand the nature of the health crisis and how keeping patients apart right now is really one of the ways we fight back against the pandemic, and that they understand that when, when medicine is practiced uh, during a national emergency, that certain things need to be done to, to do it effectively, and those things may be a little different than during normal times. I agree. I think that the necessary changes that have been made, many are very beneficial that we're seeing. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how these things continue to progress. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about how healthcare providers can manage difficult questions, difficult conversations with their patients via a video conference. As PAs, we know it can already be very challenging to have hard questions with patients face-to-face -face and to get real truth from your patients, allow them to become vulnerable. How do you go about having those hard conversations or asking tough questions in a virtual setting? Certainly, the virtual setting creates a, a different type of environment. Part of the environment places the patient a little bit more at ease because they're in their own environment as opposed to a exam room. I've always approached pain management as my role as, is really a health advisor for the patient, that they're the one at the end of the day with the problem that they present with. And my role, my opportunity is to try to determine through my education and my experience are there things that can improve the problem that they present with? So in doing so, sometimes if, for example, they have evidence of a substance use disorder or an opiate use disorder, my responsibility to them is to identify that and talk to them about therapy. That doesn't always mean that that patient may be particularly happy with me, and that doesn't always mean that they will be kind to me in social media. But at the end of the day, my responsibility to them is to, to call it as it is and to try to guide them in a way that I think will improve their health. And I don't think that the virtual environment really changes that. I think that when you're grounded in doing what you believe is right for your patient, the discussions become a whole lot easier. People enter into pain management with the notion that all of their patients will be happy and satisfied with their care. And those people I don't see generally lasting in the field. You have to be pretty rock solid in your commitment to doing what you believe is right, even in the setting of a patient who may be dissatisfied. Some of those patients will come back in the future and actually thank you for doing that. In fact, I recall a patient who I had drug tested multiple times. They ended up in a custody situation down the road, and those drug tests actually spoke to their credibility. And uh, they brought us uh, all a, a box of C's in our practice, thanking us for drug testing them. So sometimes having these conversations, doing what is right down the road will lead to a improved patient, which is really at the end of the day what it is we're trying to do. So I think that the difficulty of the conversation doesn't change in the telemedicine. You, you've made a commitment in medicine to care for these patients, and whether it be telemedicine or in person, those have to occur for the betterment of their health. I think that's a great example. There are so many long-term effects of the conversations and the care that we provide that oftentimes we don't see, but having that conversation sets it up. Along the lines of managing pain, how do you go about assessing a patient's pain level when you aren't physically with them? It's similar and different. Margot McCaffrey is a pioneer in the field, uh, a nurse who, who said pain is uh, what the patient says it is when they say it is. Pain is a subjective experience. I'm never going to actually understand a patient's pain. And we can ask them 
all sorts of things like the numeric pain scale. We can use the facies scales. We can try to quantify pain, but it really is something that is a unique experience that involves so many different factors. So what we really look for is functionality. We look for a patient's commitment to their workup. We look for the types of things that somebody with the type of pain that they're complaining of would generally participate in. So if somebody, for example, had back pain, we would want to see the records and see what have they done. Have they gone to physical therapy? Did they get imaging? Did they see other specialists? Are they taking the types of medication therapies and doing the types of things one would expect them to do? So that's part of our overall pain assessment. That being said, we can certainly talk to them on the two-way video communication. We can have them move back from the camera and show us where they have pain. We can watch them bend. We can have them walk on their toes and squat and twist. And we can have family members help out. I've had a family member I, I walked through how to do a, a tenniles test at the wrist for carpal tunnel. The challenges are there. It's not as easy as just reaching out and pushing and touching yourself. But that being said, there's still a tremendous amount of information you can gather about pain through a uh, telemedicine visit. Well, I think that's an important point of using your resources, using the information we have and the things we know, using the patient's history still allows us to get so much information to provide the patient with the best options. Now, in our current healthcare environment, as we've seen in the data, the risk of opioid misuse does remain high, and it has presented itself in many new ways. There are many specialties in which prescribing opioids is a very common practice, as you mentioned, for example, post-operatively treating injuries for acute pain and chronic management. As a PA practicing in chronic pain, what tips do you have for PAs in other specialties to prevent misuse of prescription opioids among our patients? Well, James, this is really an important topic because there are many things we can do and there are many things that even through telemedicine and during the pandemic we can do, if not even be more vigilant about it. One of the things we know about misuse from governmental collected data is that the majority, nearly two-thirds of those who misuse opioids are not receiving them directly by prescription, which means they're getting them illicitly. They're getting them outside of medical practice, which means these are not people generally sitting in front of a healthcare professional. Well, what does that mean? That means that they're getting them from somewhere else. Well, who? Is this all coming from the internet or a drug dealer? Well, no. In fact, the majority receive them from a friend or a family, often for free. We call that diversion. That's when these controlled substances leave legitimate medical practice. And one of the most important ways to mitigate the diversion is to know who the source of the drug is that's being diverted. And in fact, that mostly is patients. So the way we're involved as a healthcare professional often is we prescribe a legitimate prescription to a legitimate patient with a legitimate condition. They either don't complete the prescription or they don't store the medicine in a secure manner, and then it leaves their possession for somebody else. And that point of failure really is one of the things we must stress. We talk to our patients extensively about their responsibilities and how they store medication. We talk to them about storing medication in a locked manner, much as you would store a loaded firearm. We think this is a really key part of, of breaking this diversion situation. We also talk about getting rid of unused medications. They can either have them turned into authorized law enforcement. DEA has take-back days. There are guidance from the FDA about flushing certain medications, including opioids. So we don't want these medications around. We also have a number of medications approved by the FDA that are termed abuse deterrent formulations of opioids. And for long-term opioid use, these drugs have been specifically engineered 
to interfere with some of the common ways people misuse opioids. Many of the, for example, extended release opioids are crushed up by those who misuse them. And they either inject them or they snort them or they use them in a way certainly different than intended. Well, the FDA has authorized technology that mitigates that. They're difficult to crush. They gel when they're liquefied. These are all ways that will make prescription opioids a lesser interest for those who seek them specifically for misuse. So I think that the strategies implemented can really impact this. We also want to stop some of the common co-prescribing evasions, such as opioids with benzodiazepines. We know in patients who receive prescriptions, that particular combination is disproportionately associated with lethal overdoses. So certainly a patient who's prescribing an opioid and a benzodiazepine, hypervigilance is necessary, and really every attempt should be made to try to not have them do that. We also support widespread use of naloxone uh, distribution, that having opioids in the home certainly increases the risk of overdose, and having access to naloxone may be a a life-saving measure. So I think that the misuse certainly remains high. I think that within what we can do, in addition to assessing our patients with drug testing, monitoring the prescription drug monitoring databases, reviewing records, all the things we do for our patients, we have to recognize the magnitude of the problem of diversion of these prescriptions and make efforts to educate our patients and mitigate that process. Those are some great points you brought up. And I think it has been very interesting to see the change in the chemistry behind the production of the drugs to help mitigate some of this. But it is so important that our patients understand the effects of what can happen if their drugs go missing, if their drugs you know, get into the wrong hands and the real damage that can happen. Now, as a result of COVID-19, the DEA, as we mentioned, relaxed some of the patient activation requirements when it comes to prescribing opioids and medications. Are there any concerns or red flags that you have seen regarding this relaxation of prescribing regulations? I'm not too concerned that what the DEA has done is going to really have any particularly negative impact on patient care. I think it's going to allow for greater flexibility during this pandemic to reach patients. I do think that once the pandemic has passed, I expect that the types of exam and types of things needed will revert back uh, to a certain degree. That being said, I, I don't think of telemedicine now as a lesser way of engagement. So I don't necessarily believe that they will reverse the telemedicine component of it. I think telephone call-based care is is certainly a lot more challenging and different than video-based care. But nonetheless, I I think that these are proving to be an effective means of patient engagement. And I I should hope that they don't just revert back to uh, in-person, face-to-face care as the singular pathway for determining appropriateness of prescribing. I completely agree with you. And I think when regulations are relaxed or things change, it's a reminder that the onus is really on us, the prescriber, to be using these things responsibly, effectively, and educating our patients so they can take these medications safely. Now, when discussing opioids with your patients via telemedicine, are there any specific screenings or tools that PAs should consider when evaluating their patient? So many of the guidelines that have been developed do have some consistency amongst the need to screen patients and and suggest certain tools. I think that these can really help gather a diversity of information quickly to try to determine a patient's element of risk in terms of risk of uh, aberrant behaviors, misuse, or an opiate use disorder. Our practice, we use the evidence-based tool called the opioid risk tool. 
And this tool, I think, really captures information in an effective and quick means. It includes components that relate to the patient's personal history with alcohol and substance use, their family history of alcohol and substance use in terms of genetic factors. It factors in their age in terms of what we know is the highest risk age categories, look at mental health illness and whether or not they've been victims of abuse as a young child. And putting all of this together, there's a numeric score and that score is associated with risk. That can really help pull these different pieces of information together before moving forward and determine what level of, of oversight might be necessary, whether or not one should prescribe at all, one should prescribe a small amount and monitor them very frequently, different levels of essentially uh, oversight. I think that the PAs practicing do need to assess this. We do find often in pain management that patients may be referred to us when a problem has arisen. A patient has shown an aberrant behavior, a patient lost medicine, they overtook medicine, something occurred and now there's a crisis. And we look back and we find that often there aren't these assessments about risk. There wasn't a discussion about their prior substance use history or their family history of substance use disorders. There wasn't a urine drug test that was done. There wasn't a state prescription drug monitoring database review, although many states, including mine here in California, require it by law now. That's not even an option anymore. So hopefully that uh, those days are passed, at least for looking at the PDMP data. But really, that's the types of things I think that are necessary is, is ask the questions. It's for your patient's health interest. Don't, don't shy away from really inquiring about the things that are necessary to make good decisions. And every prescription matters, meaning if a patient goes to an ER, even prescribing 10 tablets is still an important decision-making process. These things happen quick uh, with patients who have use disorders. I have found if you just directly ask a patient, you often get your answer. Don't shy away from really asking the things that you need to know to make good therapeutic decisions with your patients. Thank you. I think you made some very good points there. And Jeremy, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about you know very timely and important topic here. As healthcare providers, the way we provide care seems to be ever-changing, and we appreciate you taking the time to dive a little bit deeper into this intersection of pain prescribing and telemedicine with us. James, I'm real happy to have had this uh, conversation this morning. I'm glad you're bringing light to this really important topic and a really timely topic. So thanks for having the opportunity to uh, to discuss these issues today. And to our listeners, thank you all for joining us for another episode of Vital Minds. To listen to all other episodes of Vital Minds and visit related resources for today's episode, visit pa-foundation.org. Support for this episode is provided by Allied Against Opioid Abuse, a national education and awareness initiative to help prevent the abuse and misuse of prescription opioids. For more information, visit their website at againstopioidabuse.org. Again, I'm James Millward, and this is Vital Minds.